Cable news, noisy, boring, out of touch. That's why Salem News Channel is different. We keep you in the know. Streaming 24-7 for free. Home to the greatest collection of conservative voices like Dennis Prager, Jay Sekulow, Mike Gallagher, and more. Salem News Channel is unfiltered and unapologetic. Watch anytime, on any screen, at snc.tv and Local Now Channel 525. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to a brand new week. I started, I'm laughing at myself because I leaned over to greet you all to the program. Thanks for tuning in. And I leaned all the way over and I thought, wait, there's no mic here. So you wouldn't have been able to hear me. Now that I've got a mic, welcome to the Monday program. Welcome to a brand new week on the Word to Stand On for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And what we do here is take your phone calls and answer your Bible questions. Whatever's on your heart or mind, we'll do the very best that we can. Questions about what we believe as Christians, why we believe it, um, anything else that's sort of going on, we'd, we'd be happy to do our best to answer those questions. Uh, you can call us by calling 340-9585. That's 340 340- 9585, all of that in the 210 area code now that we have to dial that with every call. If you're calling from outside the local area, you can call us toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. Numerically, that's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com or you can send them in via our free Calvary Chapel mobile app. If you're driving in your car and want to call, and that's what we prefer, of course, uh, you can use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the Call Now button, and you'll be connected directly to our studio producer. One more time, 340-9585. Hope you had a great weekend. Uh, We did here. We finished, uh, finally, the Book of Romans. Uh, This uh, Sunday, um, we're going to be starting a brand new book, The Gospel of Luke. Uh, here at Calvary Chapel. If you want to study along with us, just catch up. All of our studies are posted at calvarysa.com for free, and we'd love to have you. I'm really looking forward to the Gospel of Luke. Uh, Because it's Monday tonight, uh, reminder, we have our men's, women's, and youth Bible studies tonight here at 7 o'clock. The ladies' portion, May Cruzado will be teaching tonight, and um, you can watch online at calvarysa.com. Uh, we also have, of course, um, in our youth studies, both high school age and junior high school age. So it's really a good time to bring the whole family. Um, then come to worship together and then separate in your into your separate groups. Um, I had something else to say, but I lost it. Oh, well. Oh, I know what it was. Uh, we had a great weekend, Paula and I, and we took uh, Pastor Ken and May and uh, Sam, uh, who is our producer of the radio show, uh, and his wife Dawn all with us to uh, Plano to the conference. We do that so that we can do the radio program live from up there. I've got to sort of reacquaint um, our, our, our relationships with some of the, the pastors and their wives up there. You know, we only get to see them a couple of times a year, so it's always good to see them. I do want to share one uh, real prayer blessing 
um, for you, uh, uh, pastor in Lubbock, Texas. His name is Ben Martinez. Uh, he's been a good friend of ours now for probably 15 years. His wife, Nathalie, well, six years ago, she contracted breast cancer. Uh, she's had a really, really, really hard time. Um, I pray for her daily. I've been doing it now for um, a long time, since since the cancer came out. And um, I was shocked to see her, um, not just see her, but to see her looking so well uh, at the conference. And when I saw her, I just grabbed her and, and I, I just thanked her and, and said, you know, I pray for you all the time. Uh, to see you here and to see you healthy is good. And she looked at me and she said, Pastor Ron, 14 months cancer-free. So uh, those are the kind of things. When you see your prayers answered, uh, that is a real blessing from the Lord. Uh, Nathalie Martinez, and I'm going to keep praying for her, but uh, we want to just keep the cancer away. Well, let's go to your questions today. We'd love your live calls. Remember that. Our first question comes from Drew from our email inbox. Uh, and, and this is a reference to a question he asked while we were up in, uh, in Plano. Um, he said, uh, Pastor Ron, your answer to my question yesterday was spot on. Thank you for suggesting that I should not impose my thoughts and opinions on what God has written in his word. Unfortunately, I'm stuck with the mind the Lord gave me. And then he says, have a blessed day, Drew. Drew, a couple of things. And the reason I, I didn't need to put this on the air, we answered the question the other day, and your question was about the sacrifices in the millennial kingdom, uh, in the temple, and you thought, well, that would be barbaric. And I, I replied that that we need to understand who God is and what he's done. Nothing that God does is barbaric. Nothing that God does is anything other than perfect and holy and righteous. We may not understand those things, but none of those things is evil, barbaric, or in any way motivated by anything other than perfect love. Now, I read this one because this comment is one that we all struggle with, Drew. Um, Well, this is just the way I think, but that's why our Bibles matter so much. And Drew and everybody else in the listening audience, I really want you to hold on to this. You know, when Paul tells us that we can be transformed, uh, he says to not be conformed to the pattern of this world, Romans 12, 2. But be ye transformed. And here's how, by the renewing of our mind. And that's the beautiful thing that we have available to us. We have the mind of Christ. We have his mind revealed to us, of course, in his word. But, but because he lives in us, we have the mind of Christ. Now, here's what we have to do. We have to decide as we view things in this world if we're going to view them from our perspective or from his. And nothing could be more important, nothing could be more practical in terms of walking through this Christian life producing fruit. So what we've got to do is we've got to look at things instead of looking at it like we've always looked at them, we've got to say, okay, I'm going to look at it from your perspective, Jesus. And by the power of his spirit, we can do that. Now, there's this constant battle that's going to go on. Paul says we take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. But I'm going to go one better here. We take every thought captive and make it new by agreeing with Christ. And what that requires us to do is throw away the old and embrace the new. And it happens to all of us, Drew. We get in that place from time to time where... Well, this is the way I've always been, but we don't have to be that way anymore. Well, this is how I've always thought, but we don't have to think like that anymore. And we want to renew our minds continually in the Word. Now, it brings up another problem that we, all of us, Drew, struggle with. Sometimes we read the Bible with our minds instead of His. We have to remember the Bible is a supernatural Bible written by God Himself. And we have that power of God living in us. So what we need to do is re-examine everything that we've learned from his perspective. Very quick, uh, short story, Drew. When I got saved, um, my, my children uh, were 18 and 16. 
um, I was always the strong dad, you know, the dad who had answers to things, the dad who could hook them up, the dad that, that made things as easy for him as possible. And suddenly this really proud human being that I was, and I mean pride in an evil sense, I'm suddenly dealing with things as a brand new believer. And I had no answers. Now, in my flesh, I wanted just to, well, okay, I'll find out what it's right and tell them later. But the Lord spoke to my heart very, very clearly one day, and he said, you know, you need to sit down with your family and tell them what's going on in your life. And so here's what I told them. Paula was there. My two boys were there. And I said to them, boys, you've always come to me for answers. I've always given you the answers that I believed were right. But now that I've given my life to Jesus, I'm telling you that I have no idea what's right and everything I ever told you was wrong. You should have seen the looks on their faces, Drew. You should have seen those kids. How could that be true? Everything you ever told us was wrong. And I said, yeah, because I didn't know Jesus then. Now that I know him, here's what I promise you. I promise you that when I find out what's right or as I find out what's right, I'll tell you. And that was okay with him. Well, in everything that we view, you know, I get questions on this program regularly about the mean God of the, the, the Old Testament. Why, why did the God of the Old Testament uh, kill women and children and wipe out everybody in a community? And the God of the New Testament is a God of love. Well, when you look at those passages with a new way of thinking, you've got to start with what you know to be true about God, that God is incapable of evil. He's incapable of doing evil. Everything God does is right, unquestioningly so. And readjust our thinking. So that's why I wanted to read this comment that you made, Drew. None of us are stuck with the mind of the Lord gave us in our natural birth. We're blessed to have a new mind in Christ in our rebirth. And that's the mind that we're supposed to embrace. I think that's really, really a good question, Drew. And it's a really important uh, thing for all of us to practice. We have to review what we think we know and find out what we know because Jesus has given us a new mind. 340-9585 for your live calls. Here is an email question that came anonymously. Uh, he or she says, listening to your teaching on the radio, very good, but I disagree with what you said about the man-child. I believe the man-child that Israel brings forth at that time is the 144,000. Uh, the first chapter of Revelation states that these things which are to shortly come to pass. Jesus was born over 2,000 years ago. Uh, anonymous, a couple of things. Now, this is a response to the question that we had from the book of Revelation uh, about uh, who is the woman clothed with the sun in Revelation chapter 12. Um, verse 5, you say you believe that the 144,000. Now, here's why that can't be true. And it's okay to disagree with me. And I appreciate that you would call and appreciate that you're, you're, you're a, a man or woman who studies the Word. But we have to pay close attention to what's said. In chapter 12 of Revelation, verse 5, it says, She, this is the, the woman clothed with the sun that we discovered was Israel, a picture of Israel. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter, and a child was snatched up to God and to his throne. Now, on two counts in this one verse, the 144,000 are eliminated from even possibly being who's being spoken of here. First, we know that this man-child, this male child, will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. That's an Old Testament prophecy of Jesus. Only Jesus will rule the entire world from his kingdom in Jerusalem, from the throne of David, for a thousand years in the kingdom, the millennial kingdom. 
Only Jesus is said to rule with an iron scepter. Not the 144,000. 144,000 are going to be sealed by God and protected by God, but they're going to be Jewish evangelists. Imagine 144,000 Apostle Pauls. Only these evangelists won't be able to be killed because God will protect them for the entire duration of the Great Tribulation. So it has to be a literal male child who's going to rule all the nations with an iron scepter. That can only be Jesus. And that her child was snatched up to God and to his throne is a reference to his death and resurrection. And of course we know in the book of Revelation we get to chapter 19, we know that's when he comes back. So very important that you read carefully with this because Revelation in particular gives you the um, answers to these difficult questions. One other thing, you said that um, in your question, you said that um, the first chapter of Revelation says these things are to shortly come to pass. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say that at all. It says in the third verse of chapter 1, blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy and blessed, and in this context, blessed means happy. And blessed are those who hear it and take it to heart, what is written in it. And here's what it says, because the time is near. Not that they're going to happen shortly. Because the time is near. Now, from John's perspective, now remember, he wrote this revelation in roughly 95 or 96 A.D. And that was, you know, more than 1900 years ago, or just close to 1900 years ago. And from his perspective, the time was near. Why would he say that? Well, because Jesus was always talking that he would come suddenly or quickly. So it doesn't say that these things are going to happen shortly, and you compared it to Jesus' death 2,000 years ago. Well, that proves that it didn't happen shortly. Um, that's to miss the point and to misread what the text says. Let me give you anonymous one um, thing I think that will help you with the entire book of Revelation. In chapter 1, verse 19 of Revelation, we're given the outline of the whole book. This is the way that you can see what things mean and apply them in your lives. He says in verse 19, Write therefore what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place later. Now, as you look at the book of Revelation, what what John has seen is the revelation of Jesus Christ in the first chapter. I turned around and there was one speaking to me with a voice that sounded like many rushing waters. And then he describes the, 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 the appearance of Jesus. So chapter 1 is the first part of the, the outline, what you have seen. What is now is chapters 2 and 3 in the book of Revelation. And that represents the church age. It's Jesus' seven letters to the seven churches in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. And what is now is the condition of those churches and what Jesus has to say to those churches. And then he says, and what will take place later, that's the third division of the book of Revelation. That begins actually in the fourth chapter and goes all the way to the end of the book of Revelation. Those are the things that are going to come to pass in the future. So we've got what, what he's seen, chapter 1, what is now, the church age, chapters 2 and 3, and then what is later to come. That's the rest of the book of Revelation. I'd like to point out one other thing to people because Revelation has caused a lot of people uh, some difficulty. Um, The entire book, according to the third verse in Revelation 1, is a prophecy. So what we have to do is we have to apply prophetic value to the entire book of Revelation. Not just that which is obviously yet to come, the Great Tribulation and the return of Jesus. But we have to give prophetic properties to what is now. That means the churches, the seven churches, represent churches uh, throughout the church age. And even in chapter 1, what is what they've seen or what John has seen as well. So I hope that helps, Anonymous. Thank you very much for the question. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. 
Here is a question from Nathan. Uh, Pastor Ron, can the devil read our minds, and can he make us do bad things? Um, Nathan, the devil knows us so well that at times it will seem as though he can read our minds, but no, he cannot read our minds. Uh, Only God can do that. God knows our every thought, everything that we're going to do or say. He knows it before we do it. But the devil can only guess. Now, I think personally that the devil is the greatest psychologist who's ever ever been in existence. He's a quick study. He's supernatural, so it means he's brilliant. And I think he can look at our life patterns and pretty well guess what we're going to do. And the reason that that's important to him is because then he can use those things to tempt us. He can use those things to throw us off course. But no, he cannot read our minds. I had somebody once tell me that they never pray out loud. And they said, you never pray out loud. And she looked at me and she said, no, because I don't want the devil to hear my prayers. Well, remember, when we're praying, we're talking to Jesus. He's got us covered. He protects us. We don't have to worry about the devil. In fact, the devil wants you to think about him while you're praying because he wants to disrupt your prayers. Don't ever talk to the devil or or even consider the devil in your prayers. Of course we can pray. Do you not think that Jesus is able to care for us? when we come under attack. So no, he cannot read our minds. Now I will also say this. He can plant thoughts in our minds. We know that he did so with David. He moved upon David the number of the troops of Israel. So we know that he can plant thoughts in our minds. But he does that just in an effort to frighten us or to tempt us but he can't read our minds. Now, can he make us do bad things? No, but he can tempt us to do bad things. You know, um, the devil made me do it is not an excuse that we Christians are able to, to offer. We have the power that raised Christ from the dead living in us, Nathan. And that means he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. And since that's true, he can't make us do anything. Again, he can tempt us. He can plant thoughts. He can huff and puff and scare us. But he can't make us do anything. I think sometimes that whole concept of the devil made me do it is just an excuse for us to to give in to the temptation. At times, temptation can be so overwhelming that we feel like I can't take it anymore when in fact we can always take it. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says that no temptation has seized you except that which is common to man. In other words, everybody's been tempted and there's no new temptation. So whatever you're being tempted by, somebody else has already been through it. And then the next line says, and God is faithful. And God is faithful. Thank God it doesn't say Pastor Ron is faithful. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. And when you are tempted, he will always provide a way out so that you can stand up under the temptation. In other words, you can overcome that temptation. So he cannot make us do anything bad. Nathan, one of the things that has always helped me is that verse I just quoted, 1 Corinthians ten thirteen. Memorize it. And the next time that you're being tempted to do something bad, uh, remember that's a promise to you directly from the Lord himself. And when God makes a promise, his promises are yes and amen, so we don't have to give in. I love the fact that God has made us free agents, and by that I mean we are free to make whatever choices we want. What that means for us in this context, Nathan, is that we're free not to sin. We're free to say no to sin. And Acts 5.32 says that when we do that, God gives the Holy Spirit the context there is always in power. God gives the Holy Spirit in power to those who obey. So remember that you always have a way out. It's one of the reasons in his model for prayer, Jesus told us to pray like this. Lead us, not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. 
It's not that Jesus is ever going to lead us into temptation, but what he's saying there is when you're following Jesus, you're walking in the opposite direction of temptation. When you stop following Jesus, well, that's when we're being led into temptation. So, Jesus, you lead us, and he'll lead you directly away from the place of temptation, and you don't have to give in. So, Nathan, I hope that comforts you a little bit. How are we doing on time? We've got a little under a minute. Okay. I don't have any more time on this side. 340-9585 for your live calls on the other side of the break. I want to remind you again that tonight we have our uh, men's and women's and youth Bible studies at 7 o'clock. We'd love to have you uh, join us. Um, 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. I've got questions from Seth and Terry and Iris coming up, but we would love your live phone calls on the other side of the break. You're a lot more interesting than I am, so um, we'd love your live questions. 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. You're listening to The Word to Stand On for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and we will be back on the other side of the break. We'll see you in two minutes. to stand on for life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the second half of the Monday edition of the program. Now, two things. It's Monday, and so naturally I'm tired. My voice is tired, uh, but, but I apologize for the awkward silence. Uh, I was told we had just a few seconds left. I was waiting for the music and it didn't come in. And so I just sounded foolish. I'm sorry. 340-9585. Here's a question that just came in uh, through our email inbox from John. He says, Deuteronomy 31.8 and Hebrews 13.5 assure us that God will never leave us nor forsake us. How then do we explain to a non or new believer that God would forsake Jesus? Does that call his promise into question, or was Jesus simply calling attention to Psalm 22, which so accurately prophesied his crucifixion? John, that is a great question uh, and and an insightful thought uh, regarding Psalm 22. Let me explain. Uh, We do a song here at Calvary Chapel. I'm sure we're not the only ones that do it, but, but one of the lines in the song was that he was forsaken so I could be forgiven. We know for sure that Jesus' crucifixion and his resurrection assures that God will never leave us or forsake us. Now, people can walk away from God. We do it all the time. We break fellowship. But God is never the one who is at fault for that. So whether it's an Old Testament promise in Deuteronomy or the New Testament promise in Hebrews, we can absolutely depend on the fact that God will never leave us or forsake us. And the cost of that, John, was him forsaking his own son. It is an unthinkable thing for us, and at least from my perspective, it is the most difficult thing I personally believe Jesus had to deal with. Uh, The two things that Jesus really, really would have struggled with in his humanity was first, becoming sin. He knew no sin. He was perfect and pure. And when he took our sin upon him, and it wasn't just like he died for our sins, he became our sin, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, so that our sins could be forgiven. How would sin feel to a perfectly holy, righteous God? A man who'd never, ever given into temptation. How would sin feel? We, we can't even begin to imagine it. The other thing was that he was forsaken by his father. The earth turned dark. Not a local darkness. The earth turned dark because it was the darkest day ever. The father who cannot fellowship with sin forsook his son. That's why Jesus cried out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
It's very important we understand that that had to happen so that we would never be left, never be forsaken. That was how much it cost Jesus. So yes, his promise is perfect. We can depend on it. He'll always be with us. But he was also, and this is when I said the insight, John, I appreciate it from Psalm 22. One of the things Jesus was doing when he cried out, my God, my God, in the middle of his pain, in the middle of this agony of being forsaken by his Father and becoming sin for us, he was still evangelizing the very people who were putting him to death. Sometimes we lose sight of the Jewishness of the Gospels. Jesus' ministry was exclusively Jewish. He was quoting Psalm 22, a psalm that every Jew understood as messianic. And when he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Every one of them should have said, that's what the Messiah is going to say. So in effect, he was giving them one more chance to believe in who he was and to be forgiven. Now, we know they didn't take him up on it. Most did not, of course. But it wasn't because Jesus didn't try. So we can take it for sure that we'll never be forsaken, that God will always be with us. And that promise caused God everything. In fact, he himself forsaken by his father. Great question, John. Thank you. Here is a question from Elizabeth from our mobile app. I understand that women cannot be pastors according to 1 Timothy 2.12. My question is, can women be elders in the church or does 1 Timothy 3 exclude women from such roles as well? Elizabeth, uh, yes, it does. Now, I want to make a distinction because in uh, the, the Timothy passage, uh, when you see elders mentioned, um, it, it's not the way we typically have elders in our church culture. Uh, in referencing to the elders, some translations say bishops or overseers. It's an interchangeable word, and what it means is the pastor of the church. So the Timothy passage refers to pastors and not elders as we understand elders. Now, Elizabeth, the reason that we have elders who serve a different function is because uh, to, to conform with the laws, um, we have to have a board of directors. Typically, the board of directors are elders of the local church. Now, not everybody does it that way, but that's predominantly the way it's done. It's certainly the way we do it here at Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Uh, and, and it says that the elders must be the husbands. It doesn't say the wives. It doesn't say um, um, females. It's it's completely male in gender. So uh, in referring to pastors, the same thing that First Timothy refers to in chapter 2, um, he's, he's identifying the people um, that are called to be pastors or the overseers of the individual churches. There were a lot more churches than house churches because churches, by definition, had to be very small. In many places, they had to meet sort of underground uh, so that they wouldn't be disrupted by authorities. But churches would spread out, and, and they didn't have transportation like we do, so there was a lot of churches in every local community. There would be uh, house churches, and each of those house churches, Paul says, needs a pastor. Now, the way we do elders, um, as board of directors, the leadership of the church has to be male. Now, for every woman in this audience, it's not because men are smarter. It's not because men make better leaders. It's certainly not because we're more spiritual. It's because that's the pattern that Jesus gives us in his word. He's the head of the church for leadership in the church. Male headship is important. So the only role that a woman is prohibited from taking in a church is that of a pastor. And again, in our leadership structure, because elders are leaders, I have 
elders in our church who help administer the affairs of this church. Uh, they are the men that I would go to if I fell into sin or they or if I was struggling with something. They would be the men that I, I'd known a long time and I could trust them. I know they're godly men and I would go to them. They have to be men as well because they are officially leadership positions. Now, uh, there's no other position where women cannot do it. Just those two roles. And they both deal with leadership. And the reason is because God said so. Women cannot be pastors. You're right, according to First Timothy chapter 2, verse 12. It's sad that some women usurp that role and that uh, some male pastors uh, ordain their wives as pastor and they co-pastor churches. Again, it's not a knock on the on the level of spirituality or or Christian maturity of the woman, uh, or maybe it is a little bit because if a woman wants to be something or do something that God says they can't do, uh, I think that's a sign of immaturity. So let me rescind that statement a little bit. Um, but there's nothing else that women can't do. Uh, I think it's really important to say this as well, Elizabeth. Women, if you've got a gift to teach, there's so much effective teaching you can do in the church. Uh, at the top of this program, I talked about our Bible studies tonight. Um, Pastor Ken's wife, May, is going to be teaching the ladies tonight. We have some of the most gifted women teachers um, that I've ever seen anywhere here at Calvary Chapel. And they're so really, really qualified to do what they do, but they teach other women. And they use that gift of teaching in counseling. And they do so often. So there's there's many opportunities to use the gift of teaching and it's a great thing to do so if you feel you've been given the gift of teaching nurture it thank jesus for it because it truly is a great great gift remember one thing and i tell all my women teachers this i tell all my teachers this by the way but the context of your question is with women god won't let you teach theory you're going to be tested and tried every step of the way. Too much is given, Jesus said, much more is required. So you've got to pass the test. It's required that every man or woman given a trust by God must prove faithful. 1 Corinthians 4.2. So you're going to be tested. And the worst thing that we can ever do, Elizabeth, is teach something right and not live it right in our own lives. I hope that helps. Thank you, Elizabeth. appreciate it very, very much. Here is a question from Seth. Do angels appear to people today? Uh, Seth, yeah, they do. Now, I'm not sure that we would recognize them as angels. Hebrews makes sort of an obscure statement that um, people have entertained angels unaware. Nobody really knows what that means. Um, but angels, we know, can take on the form of human. Um, they can appear to us as human, um, and and I am sure they do. They appear to people all throughout the Bible, Old and New Testament. And if we understand that that's the biblical um, validation for that happening, yes, I'm sure they do. Um, I, I I think, however, that especially in the West, where we have all the information about Jesus we need, Angel visitations are really, really rare, and sometimes we like to make angel visitations the norm, and that's just not the case. Um, I've shared this on the program before, but Paul and I have had uh, at least two experiences with angels, and and probably three uh, that we know firsthand were angels. Now, we didn't see the angels. In one case, Paula smelled the angel. Now, think about that. It was when things were really the hardest, just before I got saved. And you talk about being married to a jerk. Paula was married to the biggest jerk in the world. And I was making her life more than miserable. And one day she was sort of sniffing around and she was trying to find this this aroma. And I said, well, what are you smelling? What aroma? I don't smell anything. And she said, I can't explain it. I can't describe it. It's just, it's like, and she blurted out, heaven. It's, it's heavenly. And she really, really tried to find it. And of course, you're not going to find the source of it. It happened again another time to her. Uh, and I think that was just the Lord sending an angel 
to let her know that her prayers have been heard and things are going to be okay. It wasn't too long after that that I actually got saved. Another time that we were, uh, I'm sure, without any doubt at all in my mind, that we experienced uh, angelic help. Uh, we were driving up. I was trying to beat a, a snowstorm uh, up the mountain to Bible College. We had an old Chevy S10 truck that we were driving up there, and it was so dangerous. The, the road so slick. It was not a wise thing to do. But it was Sunday night. I had to get back. That was the rule. So we're on the way, and our truck started spinning out of control on this very steep mountain grade. We were going up the mountain, uh, and we were out of control. And as we looked, we were going right toward the edge of the of the road. Uh, the, the mountain roads are very narrow. And they don't have, most of them don't have any barriers. And so uh, we were going right off the edge, and I absolutely was convinced we were going to die. We got right to the edge. In fact, uh, the driver's side where I was at the time, I could look out my window and see straight down. And that's where we were going. And with no explanation, suddenly our truck began very slowly turning the other way down the hill. So we were spinning out of control clockwise and suddenly we're going counterclockwise and we found ourselves on the road in the right lane headed back down it was as though the angel was saying you dummy what made you think you could do this so um uh, i know that angels appear to people again i'm not sure we would be able to see them or identify them as angels but that's that's happened Thank you very much. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. Let's go to Daniel from San Antonio on line one. Daniel, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hey, Pastor Ron. I wanted to ask you a question. Actually, a couple questions. Daniel, are you there? I'm... Yes, sir. Can you hear me? Daniel, hear me? going once. Oh, I can hear you now, Daniel. Thank you. Can you hear me now? I can hear you now, yes. Oh, okay. Yeah, I was going to ask you a question. Um, I know the in the Bible it says, you know, somebody is asking, you know, like what they must do to be saved. And I know, you know, the Bible says to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, right? But um, I know in some verses it refer, uh, refers, it makes reference to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. How much of their uh, repentance? What is the, I guess, the mindset or is it the attitude of, that one must have to bring about that repentance to where it's not trying to be saved by works? You know yeah. what I mean? I do, Daniel. Work, thank you. Yes, yeah, yeah, it's kind of hard, you know. You know, I, sometimes, you know, because sometimes, you know, when I got saved when I was younger, um, like I knew without a shadow of a doubt, it, I'd. I mean, something had happened to me, you know, and I got mm-hmm. saved, but, you know, I, I for me, sometimes, you know, I, when I'm, I'm, people ask me, like, how do they know they got saved? And I'm like, well, you know, did you believe in, you know, and, and then I'm, in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, like, I, you know, like, I knew without a shadow of a doubt, like, and then I hear some people say, well, I just believed, and, you know, and, but they are not sure that they did get saved, and I'm like, oh, I I would I would think that you would know, but you know at the same token I don't want to feel like I'm invalidating their yeah. salvation. You know what I mean? Yeah. Thank you, Daniel. I can I can answer that I think for you. A couple of things. One, re- repent is often called the first word of the gospel, um, and when we 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 understand it that way incorrectly, but the reason we do is because John the Baptist's message was repent. Uh, but remember, his was a, a, a baptism of preparation. Prepare for the Lord. Uh, the kingdom of God is at hand. So, so John's message um, began with repent. Jews were being baptized into repentance. Uh, that's what they needed to do to prepare for the Lord who is about to be revealed. But in reality, Daniel, um, but even to repent, we've got to believe. It's the Holy Spirit who moves on our heart to repent. So in order to be saved, um, we have to believe. And then because we believe, we repent. So it's not a work. It's a, uh, a result of believing in Jesus Christ. You know, as, as unbelievers, nobody wants to repent. We don't even like the word. We don't know how to repent. 
But once we meet Jesus, then repentance is necessary. And for anybody to say they met Jesus, but their life didn't change, well, that's a counterfeit experience. Some lives change quickly, some lives change more slowly, but make no mistake, Daniel, everybody changes if they truly meet Jesus. It doesn't mean we're perfect, it doesn't mean that we're, we're, we're not going to mess up again, but what it means is that when you meet Jesus and you do mess up again, you hate it with every fiber of your being. That's why this easy grace teaching that's so prevalent with people who say, well, you know, I know I shouldn't do this, but God will forgive me. Uh, that's somebody who hasn't met Jesus. They may know about him. They may be in church, but they don't know. They don't know him. They haven't met him. So don't worry about invalidating their experience. If somebody is talking about they can sin freely, but they say they're saved, ask them what I ask them. I say, well, how do you know you're saved? What makes you think you're saved? If you meet Jesus, your life has to change. Has your life changed? And then I always pull out Paula's card. She says, well, when were you born again? Now, not everybody has a specific answer to that. But most people know when they gave their heart to Jesus. Again, that doesn't mean we stop sinning completely, but it means we want to. And this mistaken notion in our culture that it's okay to sin, God understands, is so foreign to anything that the Bible teaches. Something else I want to point out, Daniel, is that repentance is not a work. Reformed brethren among us would say, well, well, that's a work. No, it's not a work. It's a response to having been saved. Just as baptism is a response to having been saved, there's nothing efficacious about baptism in and of itself in terms of salvation. But because we've met Jesus, we want to obey him. He said, if you love me, you'll obey me. We want to obey him. And Jesus said to be baptized. So that's what we do. But that's not a work. Asking Jesus to come into your heart, that's not a work. That's a response to the prompting of the Holy Spirit who's revealing the person of Jesus to us. So it's really important. Yes, we have to repent. But not to get saved. We repent because we already are saved. Daniel, good question. Thank you very much. And keep sharing the truth with people. Here is a question from Terry. I like this question, Terry. He says, or she says, it could be her. Why do some scientific theories contradict the Bible? Well, Terry, the reason is because those scientific theories are wrong. Flat out, they're wrong. If they contradict the Bible, they're wrong. Now, here's what we have to understand about scientific theories. One, they are theories. They're just that. But every one of those theories, the theory of evolution, the Big Bang theory, the day-age theory, all these other things that are just people speculating, every one of those theories begin with the premise that there is no God. Science can explain everything. Science can prove everything. I had a man uh, talk to one of my pastors uh, at the Easter service. And our, our Easter service was about all the evidence there is for Jesus being who he said he was, God the Son and the Son of God. And so one of the pastors was talking to him and said, so did you give your life to Jesus? Do you believe in Jesus? And his response was remarkable. After listening to that message, his response was, well, there's not enough evidence. No, there's an overwhelming amount of evidence. They just didn't want to look. And in the same way, Terry, people use science. Well, you know, science has proven there's no God. Science hasn't proven there's no God. They started out with the belief that there is no God. And you know what the truth is? If people wanted to find the Lord, there's no possible way that they would listen to some of this nonsense. What is the probability of us coming from nothing except by the hand of God or Big Bang Theory? The probability is the same as going into a, an old plane or car junkyard, a graveyard, and blowing it up and having a brand new Learjet result as all the pieces fell to earth. So science, when it's in contradistinction from the Word of God, science is wrong. It's just that simple. It's a bunch of smart people. It's hard to be smart. 
It's a bunch of hard, smart people trying to convince themselves there's no God. And the reason they want to do that is because they want to sin. They don't want to be under the authority of anyone, even God. So what you've got to do, Terry, is you've got to look at those scientific theories for what they are. They are an excuse not to believe in God. As I understand science, it's the observation and the development of things. And the only one who was there to observe it and to develop it was the one who created all things. And our Bible says, in the beginning, God. So that's what we've got to understand. I know people don't like that. Well, science has proven there's no God. That's nonsense. Science hasn't proven any such thing. Scientists don't want to look at the evidence. And I think that's a sad, sad commentary on the condition of the world that we live in. Got time for one more question. Let's go to Eris. She wrote in saying, is speaking in tongues the evidence of being filled with the Holy Spirit? Uh, Iris, speaking in tongues is an evidence. It's just one evidence that you've been filled with the Holy Spirit, baptized in the Holy Spirit, use whatever term that you want to use. But it's not the evidence. In fact, uh, every time we see the gift of tongues being used in the New Testament, it's sort of uh, a validation of the Spirit falling uh, first in the book of Acts on the day of Pentecost and then uh, in Samaria with Philip uh, when, when Peter and, and uh, John laid hands on, on the Samaritans. And then later in the household of Cornelius, people spoke in tongues because God was making a statement. This was the first inclusion of the Holy Spirit or the first inclusion of Gentiles or Samaritans. So um, it's not. You want to know what is the single evidence of being filled with the Holy Spirit? It's love. doesn't matter how much you speak in tongues if you don't love. Hey, thanks for tuning in today. Lord willing, I'll be back tomorrow at 4 o'clock on AM 630 The Word. Remember, tonight at 7 o'clock, men's, women's Bible studies here at Calvary Chapel, calvaryessay.com. Ladies, you can watch it. See you tomorrow. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio.